Hi, I'm Paul Carr, and this is a story called Night of a Thousand Noises. Um, it's about Samoa and the famous, infamous painter John Poynton, who was a friend of mine. So I will read it and then comment at the end. From the age of three, my daughter would go to sleep at night with tales of my Samoa whispered in her ears. Quite often, a certain John ended up as the main character. Daddy, she would often say, tell me a Samoan story. You've heard them all, I said, but I want to hear one again. Many years ago, I had lived in exotic tropical Samoa, deathbed of Robert Louis Stevenson, playground of Margaret Mead, in the abode of artist friend John Poynton. Once upon a tea and crumpet, John had been a 100% grade A Brit, but he reconstituted himself with a new island life. Or perhaps it was New Island Wives, plural. He had been there years ago when I was Peace Corps teacher. I'd left eventually, but he'd remained all those years since and one of the few foreigners to obtain citizenship. He'd gone through two Samoan wives, and more fairly, they'd gone through him, his things, and his finances. But they didn't completely leave him empty-handed. They bolted out of the jungle hut and left him with four kids. Uh, John made his daily bed bread by painting oils, pastels, and once in a while, in a blue moon, a pen and ink. He preferred dull green U.S. cash in return for his work, but he'd accept New Zealand or Aussie dollars. More often, though, he'd settle for a handful of Samoan colorful money. I remember him saying with a smirk, you know, it seems the prettier that a nation's currency is, the lower the value of it. Frequently, he'd barter an oil painting for a week of meals at a hotel or a pastel for clothes or goods at one of the Chinese-owned stores. In my time in Samoa, he'd always leave the drawing rolled up after he stayed with me. I'd wait until he left and unscroll the gift, and 90% of the times I'd find pastels, and every now and then a pen and ink. Nineteen of them, oils, pastels, and pen and inks, all now fight for space in my home. John stayed with me a lot, rather obviously. We kept up a barrage of correspondence over the decades, and I've come to enjoy his letters nearly as much as his artwork. He's kept me abreast of the latest scandals, swindles, and island schemes. Once you've lived in the tropics, the island bug is under your skin until your bones are planted in the ground. You love it or hate it, usually both. I tormented myself for five years there, betraying my own island bug, and finally fled back to civilized California. Not sure it's really civilized. Anywho, Years after I left Samoa, I bided my time, but I couldn't hold out anymore. That island bug is compelling and quite compulsive. Can't wait to leave when you're there. Can't wait to get back when you're gone. Push, pull, push, pull like a bad marriage based on good sex. I, like many before me, had to go back. So the letters flew between my island artist and myself. The trade-off a taste of the tropics for me, and a connection to the outside universe for John. Nor did it hurt John to know someone loved his work and admired his lifestyle. The date was set, and unlike each of the previous summers I had promised to return, this time I bought the tickets. But I also 
brought a get-out-of-jail-free card with me. My wide-eyed 12-year-old daughter, Amber. Now, I know my tolerances, and I know what the ravages of time have wrought. I'm not a kid fresh out of college anymore. I don't want to sleep in the jungle huts in 100% humidity. Plus, I had a daughter, an American daughter. John said he'd built a guest house for us. I thought, hey, we can save a few bucks staying with my old friend. And if things are really intolerable, I can blame my kid. Island time, wet jungle time, digs at the roots, washes away youth, burns in bitterness, nips at one's health, both physical and mental. Island life is easy in that little is required beyond basic survival. But the cost can be a loss of ambition and worldly connections. Both of those ooze into the ground like slowed off dead skin with each mesmerizing daily tropical downpour wafting out over the reef to the deep sea. And it's all lost in a dreamy haze of what might have been. We met at the Tusitala Hotel. Tusitala is a Samoan word meaning storyteller, named after Robert Louis Stevenson. It had taken me a while to correct my daughter's misconception that Robert Louis Stevenson had not, in fact, written The Muppet's Treasure Island, but rather the original Treasure Island. John and I hugged each other and gave silent appraisal to the pages of time. His belly had gained in girth and his legs much bloated from gout, but it could be from drinking as he had written he'd given up drinking, probably not a trade-off that John had made willingly. Far too many expatriates succumbed to the fermented drinks. Thick glass lenses magnified his eyes, and his hair, although full, had whitened. His eyes summed me up and probably passed similar judgment. My daughter's eyes focused on his glasses, and she whispered, Are those the glasses? I whispered back, Yes, when I thought John couldn't hear, but apparently time had not damaged his hearing. John tilted his head. You told her the glasses story? Well, yeah, I did, but I left out, you know, some parts. My daughter turned red but said, Did your wife really hide your glasses? And then she smashed every window in the house? John sucked in his breath. (laughs) Yes, she did. That was the first wife. She was a vicious piece of work, which is very unsamoan. She assumed the nasty thing she could do to an artist was to hide his glasses. And she was right. I thought this might be a good time to end the story because I knew the rest of it. And it was uh, very unsavory and not good for a 12-year-old to hear. So we ended it there when I gave John the look. Uh, Here are the oils and the pastels you asked me to get, I said as I handed him eight tubes of oils. They cost me $60 in California. But in Samoa, their worth increased at least five times. Most things just weren't available there. And if they were, often the quality suffered or the import tax was obnoxious, arbitrary, or both. John transferred the oils to his huge leather portfolio and stared at my daughter. Lucky she looks like her mother, not you. Many had said that to me. Amber said nothing. She offered a reticent smile of uncertainty and looked to me. She's a great kid and not a complainer, I told him. If I had to describe her in one word, I'd say reasonable. 
That's a new one for me. Reasonable and female in the same sentence, John said. Doesn't happen, ever. We both laughed. And I said, have the islands been so cruel to you? No. It was John's turn to change topics. Uh, time to see your guest house. We collected our things from our hotel room as he hailed a taxi. The ride wasn't far, perhaps two miles, most of it uphill. Paul, mind if you pay for the cab, he asked as he turned to me in the back seat. I'll cover you later. A desperate, embarrassed look crossed his face. No problem, I said. The taxi stopped halfway up the mountain to Robert Louis Stevenson's tomb. John's sorrowful glance penetrated me as I paid the measly $3 fee. We climbed out of his cab. John had always been as good as his word. I never understood how he survived by painting. God, I thought, this isn't a guest house. It's a shack at best and surrounded by all-encompassing jungle on every side. And there we stood before his creation. It certainly is colorful, I said. I hadn't really noticed, John replied. The guest house, colored a brilliant, almost disturbing turquoise, made me wonder if radioactive paint had been involved. The roof, a bold shade of red, highlighted the flimsy wooden door, which had been tinted a faint lime green. The whole building stood 12 feet wide and 20 feet long. Want to see it before we go down to my house, John said with pride. Sure, I said with faint enthusiasm. I hope neither he nor Amber noticed that. He unlocked the front door, which seemed silly. John must have caught my thought. Mm, the lock is really kind of more of a deterrent. I hope to hear them break it, and then I can get up here before they clean out too much. I guess theft is still a problem around here, I said. Only when the sun is up or down, we both laughed. They got my TV, shortwave radio, paints, and tried to take my dog, but he barked, and I think he only did that because he knows I'd feed him better. We stepped in after John unlocked the door. The place in my book wasn't even done. A plywood sheet leaned against one wall. Two Samoan sleeping mats stood in the corner like waiting cigars. Four open gallons of paint littered the floor. Two were ghastly turquoise, one that roof red and the other door lime. Dried paint drippings and dribblings worm the floor. I'll have my house girl tidy things up he said. And I thought, no bug screens, pretty close to the road. Uh, did you bring mosquito nets, John asked? No, we came stripped to the basics, carry-on luggage only. So eventually we left and we climbed down, slipping the short distance to John's home. It too displayed a Spartan setting. Wires dangled from the ceiling, Concrete floor had accumulated years of dust. Walls had been salvaged from mismatched pieces of wood from all over. A coarse picnic table served as a dinner table, and one roughly hewn chair offered the only real place to sit. I nudged Amber into it. John sat at the picnic table. It's still basic primitive motif, he said as he pointed to the walls. The price of being an artist, I said for lack of a better reply. John offered us tea with milk. He then drank some milk straight out of the carton, putting us both off of the idea of drinking, or for that matter, eating anything in his house. 
John turned to the kitchen and Amber whispered to me, hey, Daddy, let's stay out real late and then come back and sleep when we have to. Um, I had had the same thought. John, how about if we uh, treat you to dinner in town? A starving artist rarely says no to a free meal. Soon thereafter, we found ourselves sitting on the edge of a Pia Harbor in a new restaurant called the Jungle Rainbow. Amber had a regal red, yellow, and green striped parrotfish, a fish which would easily cost a couple hundred bucks in an aquarium. Here, cooked on a flat plate with salad, it cost $3. I settled for a more mundane curry. John ordered his favorite, a jungle burger, with all the green fixings attached, and he updated me on his kids. Uh, two are playing rugby in Europe. One I don't have a clue about. And the other one is under house arrest on another island when he's not stealing, drunk, or under the influence of mushrooms. I have failed most miserably as a parent. We didn't say anything, but we were both looking at my daughter. Amber nodded, but woke now and again to slap the mosquitoes feasting on her and to scratch the huge signature lumps they left. Oh, John, I think we better back. Had better head back to your home. Amber looks like she's in a coma and she's getting eaten alive. He looked at her and agreed. I paid our bill and we walked the few steps eventually to the main road. The rain began and we hid under a broad-leafed roadside breadfruit tree. A prowling taxi with one headlight rescued us. John left us at the top of his hill. Here's the key. I'll see you two in the morning. Glad you made it back after all these years. Hey, me too. Thanks for the guest house. But I was thinking, could be interesting. No mosquito nets, no screens. We're three feet from the road. We shall see. We shall see. I unlocked the door, then relocked it on the inside and placed a chair against it. We each had a floor mat and a sheet to pull over ourselves. The rain stopped and the moon came out. Downhill, we could hear singing. And even though it was after 11, we heard lots of song. Nearby huts had their radios cranked up to the max. This should be interesting, Amber. Might be a little noisy for a while. She didn't say anything and headed to the crude bathroom. A huge orange-striped jungle wasp buzzed around for a while. I grabbed the book and chased the wasp until I cornered it, smashed it, and it fell to the floor. Um, what are we going to do tomorrow, she asked. Pula Cave. What's that? A deep freshwater stream that flows out of a cave beneath a church, and then it pools with reflective white sand underneath it. Incredible. Used to be one of my favorite places. Refreshing might be good tomorrow, you know. Yeah, Munchkin, I was thinking the same thing. Good night. Hey, good night, Dad. I hope Mom is okay with us. Oh, she's fine, I said. The mosquitoes started immediately. I pulled the sheet over my head, but the warmth of my breath caught under the sheets made that pretty unbearable. Dad, yeah, I can't sleep. The mosquitoes are terrible. Yeah, me either. Pull your sheet over your head for as long as you can stand it. I tried, she said. The poor kid had been blitzed by mosquitoes. She had informed me earlier in the day that she had 87 swollen bites, and I knew her. If she said 87, it was 87. 
For some reason, they preferred her over me, although at the moment, they weren't showing much of a preference. A car, probably a taxi, zoomed by. We could hear mud splatter on our door as it sped. What was that? Oh, just mud from a taxi, I said. She remained quiet, but something under the shed didn't. Some dogs directly under us barked, growled, and then decided it would be appropriate time to make more growling dogs. Dad, yeah, um, can I sleep with you? Sure, come on. She grabbed her sheet and ran the few feet to my mat. Are you scared, she said. No, I think perhaps this may be a very long night, but I'm not scared. In fact, I think this will be a night we will remember as long as we live. Look out the window at the moon. Okay. She lifted herself on her elbows, moved towards the window, and fought off the mosquitoes. There's a constellation you'll never see where we live, I said. Where? To the left side of the moon. It's called the Southern Cross. Oh, yeah. She pointed, and I could see her outline against the moonlight. Meanwhile, a close pack of fighting dogs interrupted our reverie. Amber moved from the window and pulled closer to me. You know, I said, I think we need a name to remember this night. I don't think I'll ever need a name to remember this night unless it's Night of a Thousand Noises. Then that's it. Night of a Thousand Noises, I said. And that was pretty much how it went. Radios blared, dogs howled and fought, mosquitoes sampled our blood, wasps buzzed in and out of the hut, cars drove by, occasionally villagers trod past singing or talking, and when the sun rose, it found us worn, irritable, famished, and thankful that darkness had ended. Amber, let's pack up our stuff and head to the hotel. We need to be on the road before eight, or the sun will cook us. Miss Amber packed in double time. I went down to John and, and found him up already. So how's the guest house? You two are the first ever to use it. Um, it was great. We saw the Southern Cross, but the dogs and taxis were a little loud. I don't even notice the dogs anymore, John said. Well, here's the deal, John. I can't thank you enough for building this guest house, but my daughter isn't made of the same stuff as us. So it's back to the hotel. Let's plan on dinner tonight whenever you choose. He smiled. Back in the USA, Amber has a bedtime story she enjoys telling me now. Night of a thousand noises. Perhaps decades from now, she'll repeat it to her kids. I hope so. The end. So anyway, um, that's that story. And uh, <laughs> it's true, every bit of it. Uh, poor John. Yeah, God, he struggled. That That was the saddest bit of poverty that I've ever seen a friend residing in. It was all just so rough. The house is, it was a shed. I've got a, a photo of, of the guest house and I will try my best to, to somehow link it to, to this recording. Um, yeah. So anyway, Samoa was a wonderful place and, uh, but, uh, things change in, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't treat human beings real kindly when, when they're older. And as I used to always say, the jungle always wins. So there's that. And uh, thank you very much for listening. There will be more Samoan stories. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, and this, <laughs> to hear that the noise, I'm sitting on the floor cross-legged. I have a 
coffee table in front of me and a couch at my back and I have a 60 pound bull terrier named Snoopy just snoozing away she's snoring quite contentedly so anyway that's that's what that is so thank you very much adios